Welcome to the Few Podcast. Never in the field of human contact was so much owed by so many to so few. So you want to become one of the few. You can't skip steps. You have to put one foot in front of the other. Things take time. I have a dream. Have a dream. Hear inspiring stories from the few and learn about what it takes to turn your dreams into a reality. It's a day for all Australians, isn't it? It's a day that brings us all together. Marvellous. Your hosts, Boo and Sean. Welcome back to The Few, everyone. And again, we have a fantastic guest uh, on the show to talk uh, with me, Boo, and my superstar co-host, Sean Sewell. Hey, Sean, how you been? Great, mate. Really uh, happy to be here. And I had the privilege of, uh, of having our next uh, guest uh, come and support one of our events uh, a few months ago this year. And it was, was great. So we're, uh, we're great to... Love when um, things come full circle. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And, and uh, great to welcome uh, Jason Clark on board. Uh, welcome, Jason. Great to have you here hey, on guys, our mate. Few podcast. Hey, guys. Uh, yeah, honoured to be included in the Few. <laughs> That's right. We, we decided to place you in that, uh, in that category. Uh, well, he placed himself, really. I mean, you know, you, you go and do the things you do and you, you become one of the few. It's just... What, part of that, that whole life journey, Jason. Yeah, see, now the pressure's on. <laughs> yeah, that's it, that's it. But uh, I guess what um, you know, what connected uh, uh, me with yourself uh, earlier in the year, uh, Jason, was was the, um, uh, I know there's, you've got about a 10, I think 10 or 11 year old uh, TED Talk now, I think it is roughly, or something like that on uh, uh, on uh, YouTube about embracing change. And at that point in time, it was uh, post the initial you know, COVID sort of stuff happening. And uh, and it was a very relevant topic was about, uh, you know, adapting to change and things like that. And and obviously that, that's, that's been a focus of yours uh tell us a little bit more about your background and your your shift in towards you know focusing on innovation change uh the blocks to that and all that sort of thing well you you know the word career is both a noun and a verb you know so as a noun a career is like a history of achievement but as a verb a career means to ricochet wildly from side to side (laughs) and so that's really been my story um in 1977, I got the lowest year score, lowest year 12 score in the history of my school and was told that really I had uh, nothing to offer the world. And um, a friend of mine said, look, you, you don't mind performing, you don't mind showing off, why don't you try to be an actor? So I thought, well, that's what I'll do. But it turned out I had no talent either. Um, <laughs> and so when I was sort of auditioning for different theatre companies, they said, look, the world doesn't need any more actors. We certainly don't need you to be an actor, but what we need are stage managers. And I said, well, what's that? And the guy said, well, that's the stage. Do you think you could manage that? I thought, yeah, I'll, I'll do that because I just needed a gig. But I became fascinated because what stage managers do is they take people's ideas and then they turn them into things. They turn them into operas and ballets and Shakespeare and lesbian street theatre and all the other things that I did. And I became really interested in this this notion of how do you take an abstract and turn it into a concrete? So that's when I became, I went into advertising for a little while, but I'm, but I'm all better now. Then I worked <laughs> in media production, and then that got me involved in becoming a creative director of a large media company. Uh, and in that job, uh, what, what my task was to help other people translate their ideas into products, services, inventions, innovations, whatever. And then in 2000, I thought, well, perhaps that's what I could do. I could show people how to have ideas and then translate them into actual things. So that's been the journey. That's been the that's been this careering path that I've had, and um, it's it's actually who I am. So uh, I guess I've found a way of being myself for a living. So that's the executive summary of the story. And that's amazing. And that's really uh, the story that Sean and I like to uh, share with people. It's success is defined differently uh, no matter who you are and. 
if you're living a life, you're making a career out of your uh, passion and the things you're good at, then you know, that's pretty much success to, to a T. Now, interestingly, uh, Jason, when we were you know, doing a bit of background on you, uh, one of the things you say, and I think this is a really interesting statement, is you help people think. Uh, do you think people need help thinking? And do you think a lot of people don't really think? I'll do that backwards. Most people don't think. Yeah. <laughs> uh, that's true. And the things I think people need time to think. I think what I do is I just create space for people to think. I give them permission to think. And then I bust out a few tools and tricks and other bits and pieces that can help them. You know, what kind of thinking do you want? So decision making is a very different kind of thinking to say idea generation. But very often I think it's about creating the space. People are good at thinking. Uh, but we don't give them the time or the freedom to do it. And I think that's really my job is making it. So, so we have the capacity of thought, the capacity to think. Yeah. Uh, but we don't don't allow ourselves to do it. And why is that? What What's stopping us from, from taking this time? Well, we live in, I, I guess the thing is that we're all so in the economy that we're in now, you know, it's all about working and performing and KPIs and, you know, getting stuff done. It's always about the task. It's always about the measurement. And uh, thinking isn't always about that. Sometimes it's about, hang on, wait a second, is this even a good idea? Why are we doing this? Is there a smarter way of doing this? Uh, but if you're so busy delivering on the last idea we've got, uh, you're not going to have the space or the freedom to think of what's next. I think it's, it's, it comes down to doing, a lot of the time it's doing what's just always been done. Yeah. Yeah. And not questioning it, isn't it? It's that thing of, well, I'm just doing this because the last five people here did the same thing. Um, and we don't create, it's, it, it's, it seems to be something that, you know, I apply it to the small, small business approaches. Oh, mate, you just got to work harder. You know, just keep doing it. You know, yeah. bang your head yeah. against the wall harder. Yes, you'll get a bigger headache, but <laughs> I'm sure eventually you'll crack through it, you know, and, and yeah. it seems to be that, that common thing of going, well, and, but it, often it'll take that third party to go, hey, uh, boo, why do you keep banging your head against that wall for? Surely that's giving you a headache. Yeah. Well, you know that when people walk around wearing their sort of their Nike swag and it's got, you know, just do it. And, and I want one that just says, hang on, wait, what? Just I mean, For me, it's always about just can we stop doing stuff for a second and just maybe take a step back and say, is this the cleverest thing we could be doing? Is this how I want to spend my life? Is this how I want to spend public money? It's really about taking a step backwards and saying, could I see the whole menu, please, before I devote any more time? To what I've always done. How important is it, Jason, to connect the two though? How important is it to connect what we're doing today with the future? Because one of the interesting things I've observed about people thinking is is often they they do do far far too much blue sky thinking in terms of let's just get a blank sheet of paper and reinvent the way we do everything, even though we have thirty thousand stuff. Uh, what, what's the trick to to thinking, to being abstract, to being innovative, but not being so out there people think you're an absolute lunatic? Yeah. Have you guys ever spent time on Google Earth? Okay, so you know what happens with Google Earth. There's a zoom function. So you can start by seeing the entire planet. Okay, so if I give you the entire if I give you the entire world, if I gave it to anyone, what's the first thing they're gonna look for? Their house. Where they live. Their yeah, house. That's it. Yeah. It's the first place. Hey, where's my yeah. place? Not the Amazon rainforest. Not Patagonia. Well, that doesn't exist no, anymore. So, my yeah. place. <laughs> so that's right. So, but we, we zero in straight on the detail and we're in street view and we're seeing the minutia. We're saying, oh, there's my next door neighbor. And that's the day I didn't put out the rubbish bins. You click three steps to the left or right and you're lost. So you've got to come back out again to start to say, how does this fit in a larger context? 
And I think the thing is that I know people who are stuck in blue sky thinking, right? They're in continuously in Earth orbit, seeing the 500-year plan. I know people who are continuously stuck in street view, where all they can see is, what do I have to deliver by Friday? The trick is learning how to zoom. It's learning how to say, I think I need to stop thinking big and start getting into the detail. Okay, now I'm lost in the detail. I need to come back out again and get context. And so mm. I think that that zoom is a lot of what we end up teaching people how to do. And usually it's just about, here's a technique that will get you into the detail. Here's a technique that will get you into the bigger picture. And as you said before, I think it's that importance of having space, isn't it? That you need to create space yeah. to to stop just doing it. That's right. And pause and go, well, you know, why? Yeah, well, yeah, why, yeah. Would, why is it being done this way? Is this the most effective way? And as you said, is there a better way? Yeah. And you know, it's a funny thing because I work with, I mean, I don't know who's going to turn up sometimes. I mean, I could have 500 people or a thousand people just who just wanted in randomly. So what do I do given all of that psychodiversity? How do I use it? And I remember working with um, a group that were talking about the future of their town and they would always argue and I realized listening to the arguments, some of them were measuring the future in years and some of them were measuring the future in decades. So they're saying, look, we need jobs, you know, and we've got to solve this problem. We've got to blah, blah, blah. And the other guy, no, we need a sustainable economy. We need to start again. They're both talking about the future, but one's on low beam and one's on high beam. And I thought, well, I could bust out all kinds of tools or I could just do this. I said, okay, for those of you who are thinking about the future in terms of, say, weeks, months, or years, I want you on that side of the hall. And those of you who have got, are thinking like 2065 and beyond, I want you on that side of the hall. Now, do the thinking that you like to do. And part of what you learn to do is quarantine. I need the blue sky. I also need street view. So what I'm doing is getting the people who can give me blue sky, give me blue sky. The people who can do street view, give me street view. Now I've got everything that I need. Right? And in fact, what you're doing as a designer is getting in the middle of that and saying, what are the problems we have to solve immediately? Great. If we solve those problems, what kind of future is available to us? I mean, I've learned to think in terms of and. Most of the people I deal with think in terms of or. They see these as opposing things. I see they're two different parts of the same story. I, I have this concept uh, which is around owning the grey. Uh, which is that uh, that grey area that exists in absolutely everything we do. It's the grey area between different personalities, the grey area between time and space. It sounds to me, Jason, that what you're talking about there is is bringing clarity to something that's that's very important, particularly when you're talking about aligning uh, large organisations or or maybe even individuals that are trying to align their family and friends to their to their vision or their dream. Where, when you're in those environments, and as a facilitator, you're obviously on the outside looking in, and I'd imagine for you. Very quickly, you can pick up these disparities, these ambiguities. It's it, You've got that, oh, being, that special being radar. Being an outsider makes you look brilliant. Do you know what I mean? Because it's so it's so obvious if you've just bumped in. But, but if you've been in it the whole time, there's a great saying in Zen, we don't know who discovered water, but it wasn't a fish. <laughs> if you're inside the thing, you are lost. But the outsider can go, hang on, I think you're missing some things here. And what, what would you say uh, for people who uh, are the fish uh, swimming in the water? What are some of the cues for them? What, what are some feelings, emotions, uh, experiences you're having when you're starting to get lost in, in the detail or unable to 
achieve that level of clarity that you you find so easy to observe? Well, I reckon there's a couple of things. I'd be looking at your blood pressure and your heart rate. I suspect they tend to go up. You're probably sweating profusely. Uh, if you find yourself in conversations going, yep, 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 nup, 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 yep, 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 then I can hear your brain going vroom, vroom. You are just so aware that you've got this massive to-do list and you're not making a dent in it at all. And, and that's the other thing is that if you write out, today I'm going to achieve these things, and by three o'clock you've done none of those things, but you've done five things that you hadn't planned on doing. And then if you're the sort of person who wants to write those things on your list so you can cross them off your list, you know, if you come home at night and just you cannot, you know, detoxify yourself from from your daily work, then I suspect you're in overwhelm. And what the, the part of the issue is, if you think about your brain runs on 12 watts, that's nothing. That's no power at all. I mean, you can't light a glove box with 12 watts. And we're trying to make this do everything. You know, we have such narrow bandwidth of attention and the capacity to think. So I do a lot of my thinking externally. You know, give me some butcher's paper. Give me a whiteboard. Give me an iPad. Give me a piece of paper. Just give me some chalk and a pavement. I find that by thinking externally, and that's what we're doing in conversation, you know, we're, we're taking our ideas and we're putting them out where they could bounce off other ideas. So I found that by taking it out of here, I can get distance to it. So there's a technique we teach called problem mapping, and that's where you go into, say, a community or a group or even an individual who is absolutely drowning under their problem, under their issue. They can't see a way forward. And so I'll say, what do you think the problem is? And I keep pushing at them till we get a good definition. And I'll say, well, why is that happening? Yeah, but why is that happening? And what I help them do is build a map. And every time you put something on the map, you're externalizing another part of the problem. And what it means is this problem, which overwhelmed them, is behind their eyes, is now in front of their eyes. They can see it and they go, right, so I think my problem's here, not here, and if I tackle this and not that, I can start to see some answers. So it's getting the problem out from behind your eyes where you can see it. But it's the same with your workload and it's the same with your dreams. You can't make sense of them in here, you've got to externalize them. And as you said, in in conversation, uh, I don't know that one of my team said it the other day, we're talking about uh, learning and, and developing and things like that and working you know, directly with so many small business owners and things like that, um, that one of my team said, oh, no, but Sean, you learn by having conversations with your clients. And I was like, actually, you know what I yeah. do? Because as you said, it takes the this conceptual thing that's behind your eyes and it puts it right in front of you and then it reflects it back from the other person as well, which is which I guess goes to that that concept of if you are overwhelmed, if you are struggling, you need to have a sounding board. You need to red team it or, or you know, seek support to extract it and, and pull it into its constituent parts. I've met people who solve their hardest life problems by explaining them to their dog. You know, and the dog's like, you know, just kind of listening. But it's the thing of trying to explain to this dog that has a brain the size of a tomato what your issues are. You're hearing them probably for the first time. You know, yeah. and that's the funny thing. You, you're limited. You don't have that much bandwidth. So you need more room. You need more space. That's why you need to use other brains. And that's why you need to externalize as much of your thinking as possible. Einstein said, you should never bother memorizing anything that you can look up or write down. I'm so there with him because this thing, this little thing here gets filled up very, very easily if I don't manage those resources carefully. And when I get into overwhelm, the first thing I do is I just spill everything out. So, right, I'm just going to write down everything, work out what the connections are, prioritize what matters, what doesn't matter. And then I go, oh, I'm not carrying it. And, and of course, then the other thing is I can sleep like a baby because it's not going around and around in my head. 
I now it's out here somewhere where I'm not going to lose it. If there's someone who's, who's listening, who's struggling with that, they get into that state of overwhelm, they get into that point. What would be, I suppose, you know, a couple of key steps, sim- you know, simple key steps that they could- Three things. Three things. Three, it's always three things. For booze, always three things. Uh, say three things then uh, that people could do, and as long as they do it consistently, that it, yeah, it will yeah. have a positive impact. What would you suggest they are? Okay, so I'm, I'm not going to count externalizing as one of my three, but it would be, it's up there, right? But if you only gave me three, I'm going to go three other ones. Probably uh, I would look at installing a crap filter. So make a choice about what is it you want to be involved in. You know, best piece of advice I was ever given as a kid was either get completely into something or get completely out of it. Don't be half involved in things. And I've used that professionally, personally, and it has saved my life so many times. But I think where we get exhausted is we're kind of either in the middle of a conversation we shouldn't be in, or we're part of a group that we don't need to be a part of. And I think getting out of things so that I have more resources to to devote to one thing is really important. And that crap filter also applies to things like, I don't want to be involved in this. I don't need a piece of that. Um, My father-in-law was a very wise man and the family got together one day and they were doing a lot of gossiping. And someone said to him, oh, did you hear what uh, did you hear what John said? Hear the stupid thing that John said. And my father-in-law said, why should a stupid thing be said twice? <laughs> <laughs> and I thought, that is brilliant. If you look at your news feed, how much of your news feed is stupid people playing stupid games or saying stupid things? Well, that is yes. media. That's, that's mainstream now, isn't it? I mean, that, that, they get a joy out of it. It's And that gossip right. and, and rumor culture. But does that not fulfill some animal need in humanity to, to, to gossip, to rumor monk? I, I think it feeds our schadenfreude and it kind of makes us feel a little bit superior. It's like we, we watch reality TV because we're so much smarter than those people. But I, I just figure I don't want to have to clear garbage out of my head. So I'm not going to put it in there in the first place. So that would be, you know, absolutely, you know, w- one of the three things that I would do that, you know, turn the phone off, turn the feed off, turn the notifications off. Why do you have this thing pinging at you all the time? Why is that even necessary? So I think that would be a big one. Um, I think the other thing is that just find ways of processing information. So I tend to think in terms of, look, I'm, I'm very metaphorical. Mm-hmm. I find that metaphors are a much easier way for me to organize thoughts. Uh, and one that I, I kind of find myself using a lot, and it's a perfect time to do it, is the Christmas tree. If I showed you a box of Christmas decorations, but you'd never seen a tree, you wouldn't know what to do with it. You'd have no context. It wouldn't make any sense. But if I showed you a tree, in fact, if I just showed you a green triangle, you'd go, right, okay, the fairy on the top, the presents on the bottom, the tinsel all the way around. You can now start to organize information because you have a context. And I think we're in a very content-heavy world right now. Uh, Every conference I go to, it's full of content experts. And I'm getting hired now as a context expert. How does this all fit? Show me how these things relate. Because if you can see the relationships with things, they fit neatly into your mind. It's more like this shelf behind me. You can kind of categorize and put things where you can remember them or you can junk them. But if it's all just thrown in together in a big old pile, how do you make sense of it? And then I think the third thing that I would probably do, I don't know if you've ever used morning pages. Um, an artist called Julia Cameron came up with this idea. And when I first heard of it, I thought it was very flaky, but it actually works. If you are absolutely overwhelmed to the point that you just can't think straight, here's a trick. You get yourself a notebook. No one else must ever see it because it's going to be filled with some pretty awful stuff. Get yourself a big notebook 
you get up first thing in the morning, you don't have coffee, you don't have tea, you don't have a cigarette, you don't have a shower. You get a pen and you write without stopping until you've filled three pages and you shut the book. You may already start to feel the benefits of that that day. Your head might seem a little clearer. Do it again. Maybe do it for a third morning. I've never had to do it more than four mornings in a row to get a completely empty head. And the way it works is that your unconscious brain, when you're waking up, you don't have editorial control. And so what you're writing is, oh, I'm so tired. Why am I doing this? What a stupid idea was that guy talking about? What a freaking idiot. And there's like a page of that. And then you start getting into some deep stuff. But your hand has to keep moving. You can't stop and you can't read and you can't edit. You just have to blurt. And it's kind of an ablution. It's like a mental ablution. And the funny thing is I found my morning pages book a couple of years ago and I thought, oh, what's the harm? I'll have a look. Oh, my God, the (laughs) garbage, the stuff that I was dealing with, right, just the nonsense I had in my head, the baggage I was dragging around. So I took the book out and, like, just shredded it because I thought, okay, no one must ever see this garbage. But it actually allows you to purge. And after about two or three mornings, and I've had lots of other people tell me the same thing, it's almost like you can hear the wind whistling through your head. Uh, In order to have a clear head, it's got to be effectively empty. You there's no difference between a, a closed mind and a f- mind that's full of garbage. It's essentially the same thing. Jason, you've, you've gone into some uh, big areas there uh, and some, some areas where I, that I'm uh, fascinated by. Uh, my background uh, is as a fighter pilot. And one of the key uh, traits that we're taught is the concept of situational awareness, the, the context of things. Because in that environment, in three dimensions with multiple aircraft moving around, it's humanly impossible to track everything. You, you know stepping out the door, you are going to be overwhelmed. Your whole existence depends on your ability to manage information overload right. and sense of fusion and the way that the systems and everything's designed through automation is how do we take insanely complex three-dimensional environments with lots of moving parts, lots, lots of mathematics, uh, lots of art and science mixed together and present in a very simple format for the poor old fighter pilot to just make some decisions because uh, those decisions are quite high consequence e- either way. So when you start talking about being a context expert, you've immediately got my attention uh, because I, I, I completely agree with you. And I feel like we've moved from the uh, the, the era of information and he who had the most information had the power to all pervasive information and he or she who has the context now has the power and and I think we're seeing with the strong personalities uh, the the it, you know, Donald Trump is probably the poster child people who are very good at finding the right information to suit their context and their outcome become very powerful uh, individuals. So let's let's not look at context in, in that way. Let's look at the use of context to affect uh, positive change. Yeah. Uh, I think a lot of people don't grasp the concept of, con- I don't even think they've thought of context. I mean, academia does not develop the concept of context. Yeah. Again, it is, yeah, that's right. it is information. So why do you think as a tribe of billions of human beings, context is so elusive? I, look, I, I can theorize. I think one of the things that our economy is based on specialisms. So my GP doesn't earn as much as a pathologist who doesn't earn as much as a neurosurgeon who doesn't earn as much as, I don't know, whatever the, the next bit of you know specialism is, that um, the longer that you've spent perfecting one thing, the more valuable you are as a, as a mechanism, as a, as a component in a specialist society. 
So we, we don't really value generalists. We used to. So if you think about the golden age of Greece or the Renaissance or the Enlightenment, all of those people were generalists. You know, so here's a sculptor who builds a cathedral, you know, and uh, here's a poet who writes the constitution and then, you know, sets up an industry. So you have all of these people who are what they call polymaths. There were people who were, they were good at a lot of things, but they weren't brilliant at anything. In fact, that's the perfect, the reason why we use them, the Vitruvian canon, you know, that Da Vinci's man in the circle. The reason why we use that symbol, that drawing, uh, to represent the Renaissance human being is it's a human being stretching out as far as they can in all directions. And to me, that's a much better model. Uh, so the, pe the people I've met who I admire are what I call Swiss army minds. You know, they have lots of ways of seeing the world. They're not a genius in anything. They're not a specialist in anything, but they're more likely to see connections. So I think because we figured that uh, specialism was more important and should be more valued because you have to train longer to be a specialist, we've uh, sort of not encouraged people to think as generalists. The thing is, though, specialism suffer as soon as there's change. If you look at all the fossils behind me, you know, the reason why they're dead is that they were perfectly suited to an environment that changed. So that's the catch. And I think the reason why we're shifting back towards a contextual generalist mindset is how the hell do you make sense of something which is uh, volatile and as dynamic as the world we're in now? Specialisms break the minute the world shifts. So that's why I think uh, we've moved from it. We're moving from, not fast enough, from a specialist way of seeing the world to this generalist contextual way of seeing the world. I think that's what's happening. That's incredible, yes. Yeah, I don't know whether it's happening or it needs to happen. I think there's this <laughs> well, whole... It is happening. It's just not happening enough. Yeah. I mean, I mean, and the I fact that it's... someone like me can make a living at all, I think, is a symptom of something. You know, why would organizations hire me? Everyone in the room has got five PhDs. Why do you need me? Why the hell am I here? You know, I, I'm constantly working with people who are far better educated and trained than I am, but they've got tunnel vision. They can't see what's right next to them. Abu uh, said it earlier in a conversation. We talk about you know with uh, uh, kids coming out of school and what they put in the paper is the the um, uni degree should go with that it makes the most money, right? And it's it's again it's. Are that, you trying to make me mad now? Because that will make me mad. It's the worst. Yeah. It is <laughs> so is, bad. And, and and so many people know that you know when I left school and stuff that, that uh, I didn't go to uni. I think people thought I had a third head, you know, or two or two extra heads or something. And when uh, when I said that, um, but more than half of my friends went and did a, either a bachelor of a uh, you know, BA, a bachelor of attendance, <laughs> uh, and and um, uh, the, commerce or marketing, yeah, right. and, and have never used it. Or the other, and and probably you know half of them never even finished. They just dropped out because there was this push towards a, a a specialized role of some kind. But they're like, yeah, but I, that's not actually what I want. So it, I think it's still there. But it, as you say, it could definitely benefit from having more people that look at the the the, the coin from different angles to see whether they see a butt or a face. Yeah. You know, it depends. Same coin, right. but depends which way you're looking at it. Hey, you know the other thing you should, that's worth looking at. If you think about the the entrepreneurs and the innovators and the inventors and the discoverers, right? Look at their academic records. Oh, abysmal. It is almost a cliche hope. that the people who, <laughs> by the way, transform and define the world, very few of them got through high school. Is Now, did they fail school or did school fail them? Which way do you want to look at this? Look, I think I think you, you have to, it's a bit like a vaccine, right? Uh, education needs to raise the general bar in, yeah, in society, agreed. right? You, you, to, to have general knowledge about a bunch of stuff. Uh, 
but it's def- it's in a behavioral way in, in which it's delivered, it's structured, it it fits your specialization model. That's right. Uh, for for those who are outside the square or or abstract or I oh know I was terrible at, at high school and I actually uh, kept getting detention because everyone thought I was a smartass because I'd ask abstract questions based on the subject. I remember one day they're talking about my science teacher were talking about the atmosphere and and at that time it was space shuttle and all those things and I was. My conversation was right. Okay, well, as the space shuttle transitions through, that what speed is it going? He's like, this is not about the space shuttle, but it's like, yeah, but that's that that to me is tangible. That's a that's a feat of humanity, and how do all the different layers and what happens in there? And he's like, all right, you don't conform, get out. Where is Max Q? Okay, and and where the, does that happen? The teacher couldn't answer it. At what it. level? At what speed? Yeah, the teacher couldn't answer it. Obviously, thought I was trying to be a smartass to make him look bad. Boom, I'm detention. So I always found that quite confusing. He's like, what am I in trouble for? <laughs> What? <laughs> I had the same thing with, yeah, my, I, with my physics teacher. Exact same thing. Yeah. Where I kicked out because I kept pushing back. I didn't understand, and because he couldn't answer it, he just kicked you're, me out. You're in trouble. <laughs> hey, I've got to tell you, when my uh, son was little and he was going to primary school, and they had to choose an animal that they were going to be for the week, right? And I said to him, "Have you have you chosen your animal?" And he said, "Yeah, I'm going to be a virus." <laughs> and I was so proud. I thought, my boy, my boy. And he said, I'm going to be a T4 bacteriophage. He'd even picked the freaking virus. And everyone else in the family was going, Oh, no, sweetie, please, no. No, no don't be a virus. Be a, be, be a, be a puppy. Cow, be a pussycat. Be a horsey. Like, the kids are going to beat you to death. You, know, you could see the whole thing. Don't stand out. Don't be different. Don't be weird. But like some of us are making a pretty good living doing that. And I would say that those people who step out and see a different thing, they're usually the ones who see the future before it happens. My money's on those guys. Mm-hmm. You know, I think that's the way this works. They, they, they might get beaten up at school, but then later on, people it, it tends to turn around. Do you know what? It's a small price to pay. <laughs> and that is a price. I mean, there's the price to pay in conformity is is conformity. That's the price. You you don't you have a that banal existence. But, yeah. but when you actually, that's that's funny. You know, one, I know one of the questions you ask on the the podcast is, you know, are you successful? And you know, have you, you know, made your own definition of success? And and I think I kind of cheated. Uh, because I've just found a way of living that makes sense for my particular way of thinking. You know, I've, I've turned my psychological disorder into a business. Um, I wasn't competing with other people, you know, so it's not like I, to be a fighter pilot, I had to qualify against everyone else who wanted to be a fighter pilot. And, you know, so you've, you've, you've done really well in someone else's game. Uh, whereas I cheated and went, I think I'll just make a game that works for me. Yeah. Mm. Um, do you know what I mean? So if, if this, if it's happiness, if it's the search for happiness, if that's the key to success, I called off the search a long time ago. But let, let, let's revisit that for a minute because that's quite interesting. And and something I've sort of been thinking about recently is most of us have a trade. Like your trade was as a stage manager in media. That's your that's your trade. Uh, but I think what's important, uh, and maybe what a lot of people don't understand, is that doesn't have to define you. That that's just that's your start in life. You, you might, you know, as as we said before, Da Vinci. How many times he come up today? This is like the second podcast. Uh, but but how how would you uh, assist people or frame up for them the fact that they don't have to be defined by where they started or what they are today? Well, look, I think if you watch Fight Club. You know, you are not your job. You are not your income. You are not your possessions. You are none of those things. You are whatever you decide you're going to be next. And the thing is, when I think about all the things that I have done, 
they're really just steps that I took to get to, to me to wherever it is that I am now, whatever the hell it is that I'm doing now. You know, th- those things don't define me. And yet I think what happens is we say, this is Bob, he's a doctor. This is Janet, she's an astronaut. You know, so we've actually go, the person is the job. And I think part of the problem that we've got now, jobs are being destroyed at a phenomenal rate and new jobs are being invented all the time. So what happens if Janet's an astronaut and we're going to send robots instead? Is that the end of her? You know, was she really smart to think, no, I am the job? Or is the job just something that I'm currently doing? You know, so I was raised by musos, so we have a very gig mentality. This is just my gig. You know, what the gig is next, I don't know, but I'm the one constant throughout it. But we get very caught up in saying, you know, I am a lawyer. No, you're not. You're a person who's doing law at the moment. Who knows what you're going to be next? And I think if you if you can disconnect yourself that you are not what you do, that's not what defines you, then change is a lot less frightening because you can let things go. That's that's what I found. I, um, it's interesting you mentioned the word lawyer. We were talking about a client of mine yesterday who, who is a lawyer and he sent through a, I was doing a mentoring call with him, he sent through a document that looked exactly like a legal contract with 2.1 A, B and C. And, <laughs> and this is like and this defining, is about purpose, defining right? his purpose for himself, right? And, and I just, I went, and it was literally, it was eight pages and, 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 uh, and I'm getting on a 20 to 30 minute call with him. And I just said to him, I said, look, what I need you to do is I need you to stop being a lawyer. And uh, he's like, oh, I said, because you aren't a lawyer, you know, you practice law. That's right. I said, but what you're doing is you're trying to solve your personal, like find out who you are with your lawyer glasses still on. And so you're looking at yourself like you look at a client. I said, that's not going to work. It's it's Maslow's hammer, Mm. you know, isn't it? I mean, if you're a hammer, you see every problem is a nail and every nail is a problem, you know. And one of the things that we teach in creative thinking and creative problem solving is what if this wasn't you doing this? Mm. You know, what if you weren't you solving this problem? What if you were Scandinavia? What if you were a million bees? You know, so just something that you're not to see if there's another way of looking at this thing. And it's part of, I think, a lot of what I try to do is to get the insider to become the outsider just long enough that they get a different take on it. That, that's so important. I think it's a good area to focus on. We, we speak a bit about ego as well, right? And and how uh, ego, I guess, in, in the context there is very much inside yourself, very much in you. Um, I think people struggle with the concept of ego. You say, hey, look, I think you caught up with your ego there. And they're like, I don't have a big ego. What do you mean a big ego? I'm like, no, no. How, how do you define ego in, in, in what you see, okay. uh, Jason, uh, and how? When, okay, when I, used to, uh, when I used to tour operas, you'd say, oh, we've got this soprano and she's coming from Covent Garden and we've got this other guy from La Scala and they've got massive egos. So just so that you're aware, they've got massive egos. And what I found is that, that they had tiny egos. The reason why they needed so much fuss made of them, the reason why they were competitive, the reason why they always had to win, why they always had to beat other people, their egos weren't strong. They were fragile. Look at Trump. The man has the smallest ego in the world. Now, no one else is going to say this because everyone's got, oh, the guy's got a big ego. If he had a big ego, he wouldn't care what other people thought. That's what a truly big ego looks like. I have a massive ego. I don't care what other people think about me. It actually doesn't matter to me at all. That's how good my ego is. Do you see the difference? But when you see people who are constantly demonstrating their value, constantly demonstrating their worth, 
you know, constantly showing that they are the best and they are superior. That is a very frail ego. So I think I'm a big fan of strong egos because it allows you to stop caring what other people are thinking. Because, oh, by the way, here's a tip. Most of them aren't thinking anything. If you can put that aside, you can just concentrate on what matters to you. Nothing else bothers you. Nothing else distracts you. So, so you see your father, Jason. How do you how do you uh, share that message um, with your son? How do you get to a point that uh, because as we as we grow and, and you've had your experiences and you've tried things and no doubt failed at some things and excelled at others. And when you're looking at a brain made out of plasticine, which is a child, how do how do we instill these values? How do you instill these thought processes? I think um, if I was to look back on it, I'd say 95% of it's been osmosis. D- you know, that by being that person, by actually living that life, the, the, the kid takes it in and says, okay, that works. That doesn't work. I think I'll be like this. I think I'll be like that. So I can't ever think I ever sat down with a pipe and said, well, son, this is how it is. I don't think we ever had that kind of moment. Um, we get little touch points where you'll say, look, this is what I'm dealing with at the moment. Well, I don't know what to do about that. I'll say, well, have you thought about this? Have you thought about that? But we've one of the views that we always had with him was that if he doesn't want to go to bed and we want him to go to bed, then we have to present arguments. We did this from the time he could talk. Right? And if his argument for staying up is better than our argument for going to bed, he gets to stay up. And that does two things. It teaches him not to value authority, you know, not to be concerned because someone else told me to learn to question and to push back and to reason and to debate and to argue. And I think that was probably the best thing we did. It's hard from a parent's point of view because the kid's pushing back, but isn't that what you want? But if you've taught the kid, listen, I'm your father, you do what the hell I want, one day he'll be bigger than me. Let's just remember that. But also I've taught him that he's got to follow someone. And when he hits, when the when the hormones kick in, who is he going to be following? It won't be me. It'll be some idiot from up the road. So I think to have your own thoughts and to present your own thoughts and prepare to be wrong, I'm, I'm sure we've talked about that a lot. But it's something that we've actively modelled, and I think that's who he is as a result. Hmm. I bet his teachers uh, like that too. <laughs> <laughs> oh, they hated it. They hated it. He had a thing. He had a thing with. Um, uh, came home with a piece of paper and it had a bull, a car, a duck and a goat on it. Bull, car, duck, goat. And um, I'm getting the dinner on or something, I don't know. And he said, oh, Dad, I've got homework. And like he was excited to have homework back in the, in the old days. And he said, there's a bull and a car and a duck and a goat. I've got to work out which is the odd one out. I thought, well, off you go. You know, He came back half an hour and he went, this is really hard. I don't think I could do this. And I thought, oh, my God, he's an idiot. I mean, this is so simple. Odd one out. This is Sesame Street 101. And he said, do you know how many answers there are to this? And then he took me through it. You know, uh, the duck is the only one with two points of contact on the ground. You know, uh, the duck is the only one that hasn't got a horn. And we went through the whole list. You know, the car is the only thing we can't manufacture in this country. There's a whole list of these things. And I thought, well... Which answer do you think the teacher wants? Maybe that's what this is about because there's 30, 40, 50 answers here. I use that exercise now in creative thinking with CEOs, right? How many answers are there? Now, which one does the system want? And he said, I think they want the car because it's not alive. I said, okay, just mark that. Take it back to the teachers. And I saw the teacher the next couple of days and I said, 
What a great exercise. That was so interesting. We saw all the possibilities. And then we picked the one that we think the system's looking for. And the teacher said, are you going to do this all year? <laughs> and I thought, yeah, I am actually. I think you've made this really clear to me. Lucky I think you. I'm going to have to do this for his entire educational career. Because the world is full of people who have found the correct answer. And that answer doesn't make sense anymore. So we need people who can see the other answers. But if we've filtered them off before kinder, what are we going to do? So I think it's that, that there's always a, another answer and there's always things that other people haven't thought of. Go look for it. Um, I've modelled that. We've talked about it, but I think that's what he does. But you know you know, this sets him up for a life that's probably more complicated than a lot of people. Obviously, as a conformist, uh, for a lot of people, life's pretty easy. You have your job, you've got your mates, you have your beers, you go have your glass of wine, hang out with the girls, girls' nights, boys' nights. Yeah. You, you know yeah. straight out of the gate, and no doubt uh, uh, yourself as, as Sean and, and myself, you, you're you are setting your son up for a life which is full of challenge and full of complexity. And, uh, and, and how, do you how, how do you feel about that from the paternal side uh, of your, of your um, when you look at your son as well? Because uh, no doubt you, you are on a life which is the roller coaster life, the, the high highs, the devastating lows. I mean, you're a, you're a speaker, you're a coach, you, you, you connect with people and you've just existed in the era of zero connection. Yeah, uh, so much fun. This has been the best year for me. I mean, in terms of earning, forget about it, but in terms of learning, oh my God, this has been such an exciting and interesting year because I've been forced to redefine and question a whole lot of things. I'm really grateful for that. But I think to go back to that, you know, does he have a, a more complicated life? Um, I don't know. Because I think if he if he sees the world as being this dynamic and changing space and that he's looking for the shape and the context and imagining what's next and what else is possible, I think he'll have an easier life than someone who was in exactly that same world without a clue as to how it works. So I think that whole thing about, you know, go out with the mates, go out with the girls, that's comforting. Do you know what I mean? You've surrounded yourself in your little bubble and felt great. And don't get me wrong, I do like going out with friends. You know, I, I, I do really enjoy that, but it's not enough for me because I am curious and I've seen that there's more out there. So I think the larger your perspective and the more uh, agile and flexible your thinking is, I think the easier life is because you've suddenly realized I'm on the ocean, I'm on the, o I'm on the open ocean, I'm not on a train track. Yeah, and this randomness doesn't freak me out, whereas everyone else is completely losing their minds. I think in some ways it's easier. I guess the difficulty could come from having the wrong people around you. That if you have got conformists and you're clearly not, or you put yourself in an environment that is about conforming and you're not, like the, like the school environment, I'm sure that came up a few times in his school career, um, that that's where you would get the difficulty potentially. You know, is is and it's about finding those people that it's hard. That it's resonate. hard to find expansive thinkers when you. I don't remember really anyone. I was a weird kid at school, you know, but conformed enough to sort of because you, you teach yourself to. Because you had to. You, you, you know that, oh, if I say that, people look at me weird or whatever. So don't say that. And, and you program yourself. Uh, but, you, you know, there was also kids that didn't do that and weren't able to. And they struggle. I mean, I, I think once you get through the late teens and 20s, you're okay. But, uh, you know, to, to probably touch on a darker point of, of the few is some of those kids took their lives. Uh, highly intelligent, super sensitive, creative, artistic, out there, but 
misunderstood, bullied. Yeah. yeah. Actually, let, let me let me tell you about that. That's really interesting. When you have the outlier, and it could be because of the way they think or their gender identity or whatever it is about them that makes them kind of weird, you are buying into a different path than other people. Yeah. The thing is, the degree to which you need the approval of other people may have something to do with how depressed you end up being. So, you know, we all know the stories of the trouble artist who killed themselves. Now, would they, did they kill themselves because they're an artist, because they were a genius, or did they kill themselves because society didn't get them? I think it's B. And if you don't care what society thinks, you know, when, when my son wanted to be a virus and they said, oh, you know, aren't you worried about what the other kids think? He said, I don't know that they do. And I thought, he's cracked it. Six years old, he's just figured out the secret of life. Why should I give a damn what other people are thinking when their primary concern is, does my hair look nice? Am I wearing the right shoes? Does my bum look too big in this? And what does this person think about me? See, you know, see for so me, I'm, though. So, so what, what I'm saying is the degree to which you can, you can own your own strangeness, if that's what it is. And I'm not saying this is for everyone. Don't get me wrong. This is the podcast called The Few, not The Many. This is not for most people. This would be for your kind of listeners. I think if you want to lean into the thing that makes you unusual and different, all we really want is to be valued. That's it. Adam Smith said that. You know, like the inventor of capitalism said, we just want to be valued. And so all you need are people who see the worth in what makes you different or strange or unusual or extraordinary or whatever else it is. Do you need that to be everybody or do you just need enough? You know, that's the way I tend to look at it. But if you're completely caught up with being accepted by the wider community as a genius in your time, forget it. That never happens. It hasn't happened in history. It's just not the way that societies work. One of the interesting things I was uh, taught, uh, and I passed this to my uh, son as well, was uh, going through the, the Air Force where your training is very one-on-one uh, and being a bit of a left-field kind of dude, uh, a couple of the guys that I, I work with said, hey, look, this is a game. All right. This is a game of conforming. This is a game where you have to go through these steps to get the to get the trophy at the end. There's no there's no other pathway. This is what it is. It is what it is. Uh, yeah. You've got to learn to play the game. And for me, that was a great piece of advice. Which was when you when you know that and you go, ah, oh, hang on, I I'm not I'm a nonconformist, but I get it now. I get that there's this game and school. As I said to my son, it's just a game, mate. It's just yeah. Something you have to do. I'd say, I'd say three things about this. I had a, an English teacher who taught me this about the game. He said, number one, know that it is a game. Two, choose when you are going to play in the game. Three, don't ever think it's anything other than a game. And I thought that was a really good piece of advice. So you want to pass this test? You want to impress the in-laws? You want to get the bank loan? Play the game, baby. If you think that's the time to turn up with your weird and exotic life and whatever else that makes you unusual, you're wrong. You know, I mean, that's, we don't take balloons to a funeral. There's a reason for that. You just go, you know what? I'm just, I've got a tie somewhere. I've broken it out maybe four times in my life because sometimes there's a tie situation, but it's not all. Not with that shirt, mate, but I get exactly where you're coming from. But you know what I mean? If you're constantly pushing against the norms, your life will be harder than it needs to be. So I think you choose. So all this, all this stuff that you know my son would do in primary school, he wasn't pulling that stuff in year 12 because he's thinking, oh, you know what? I just got to power through this, give them what they want. Year 13, I'm going to go crazy. Um, and I think it's knowing when to kind of, now I'm in a performative situation i'm delivering what is expected of me and now i'm being my own self i think that's completely fine and you step into it and out of it based on the yeah. outcome you want to achieve 
You know, that's right. I think that's right. It's a, I went to a Catholic school, and I think one of the one of the really interesting things about when someone says to you it's a game, if you're brought up within that structure, you go, well, that's disingenuous. That's not real. <laughs> How can it be a game? It, this is real cars and stereos. This is in, this is important. I think a key part of that, and the earlier this concept is introduced, I think the more valuable it is. Uh, what do you say to that? When when because people even today. Yeah, when you talk about influence and you know you've got to communicate in a specific way in a meeting to get the outcome that you want they're like but that's being manipulative it's like no no it's being influential it's different what what do you say to people who 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 are who are that black and white and 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 can't quite see how the margins work yeah well i introduce them to gray and i introduce them to color but but i guess just on that communication thing is really very interesting i think that what comes out of pauline hansen's mouth is a completely authentic, genuine representation of the contents of her head. I'd say the same is true of Trump, right? I'd say the same is true of Sarah Palin, right? Uh, they open the mouth, out comes the stuff, and you go, man, it's a mess in there. Those people are genuine. They're giving you this. There's no polish whatsoever. But I also believe that, say, an Obama gets up, and it is, you know, it's been crafted. He's chosen the words. He's thought about the timing. He's got the pauses down. That doesn't mean he doesn't mean those things. In fact, it might mean that he means them more because he's taken the time and the care to make sure they're communicated clearly. In a deliberate way. But yeah. but in our society, we tend to think, yeah, it's a little bit polished. Do you know what I mean? It just seems a little too crafted, little focus grouped. I think it's a lie. Why is preparation non-authentic? doesn't make sense to me. Now, we know lots of politicians who have perfectly focused uh, grouped uh, sentences that mean nothing at all but you can spot the phony it's not, don't be don't be def, don't be confused by the polish you know look at what they're talking about um so i, I tend to i think because i worked as a writer for quite some time i'm very careful about my words like even now i'll sort of think is that what i meant is that what i meant to say is that the best word for that and i'm not doing that to create an impression i'm doing that to make sure that what's in here gets through to your listeners with the best fidelity i can mm. i can offer Mm. Does that make sense? Absolutely, absolutely. So one of the key things that uh, that uh, you talked about, um, as I said at our event a few months ago, was uh, about people embracing change. Actually, embracing change. Um, obviously, you can call it innovation. Word. You can call it whatever you like. Can we just dispense with the word change? I mean, let's think about it. Like we talk about this change as if we we move from one fixed state to the next fixed state. You know, it's. Well, I think the world needs to embrace entropy and chaos theory like it's we, we do the best we can what's relevant today is relevant for a set period of time we don't know what that time is mm. why why do we wed ourselves to this word change jason i'm with you i'm not a fan of the word uh because i've got a bigger vocabulary than that and probably about five thesauruses behind me and so i will think am i talking about progress or am i talking about mayhem am i talking about chaos or am I talking about invention? What am I talking about? So I think change is too broad a term and it has so many different meanings. See, change was Obama's selling point, but he wasn't saying, vote for me, there'll be chaos and mayhem. He was saying, we're going to make things better. If you want to make things better, welcome to innovation. You're one of my people. If you just want to improve things, we're on the same page. But if your idea of change is I'm just going to blow everything up and see who wins, then that's not a change I'm interested in. 
So I think it's it's too broad a term and it has too many meanings and we need to be clear about which one we're talking about. So very often when people use the word change, they're talking about something that's happening to them. Here comes change. We're going to have to respond to change. The department's being changed. It's a very passive way of looking at what you talked about, entropy and all the rest of it. But it also makes us resist things like innovation. Hey, we think we want to improve this system. We think there's a better way of doing things. Oh, here comes another change. Whereas when people talk about innovation, they're kind of talking about change that they want to make happen. It's not something that's happening to them. You know, it's uh, to, to, it's actually actually something that they're driving. They're on top of the wave, not underneath the wave. So I find that clients want to talk about change, and then I want to start busting it open and saying, let's talk about different aspects of this. Which one are we interested in? Does that make some sense? But the word itself, I think, is useless. And when they say people fear change, do you think it's the change or the unknown that they fear? Well, I think people uh, actually love change. I think they love it, right? Uh, people renovate their houses and they uh, try different foods and they have affairs and they travel and uh, they change their names and they get piercings and they have uh, gender reassignment surgery. People are into change. They love change because they want better. You know, uh, who was it that said that uh, human beings are the wanting animal? There's a better way. What else is out there? I mean, if you say, hey, go to the airport, there's been a change to your flight. Is it an upgrade or is it cancelled? Because which one are we talking about? So I think people actually desire change. They want change. How many people? We vote and we protest, you know. Um, why? Talk to anyone in public service. Why are you here? To make a difference. Doesn't that mean changing things? Isn't that exactly what that means? People don't like being changed. They don't like change for change's sake. And they don't like things being altered with no benefit. You know, I don't like waking up and find that my phone now has a completely different operating system because Apple thought that was a good idea. I haven't factored in the half an hour it's going to take me to learn how the phone works because I kind of had a full day. So I think people want progress and they want improvement. They want a better world. They don't want things changed just for the hell of it. And they don't like being forced into change that they have no uh, authorship or partnership in. That's the way I tend to think it works. So if people have a resistance to that, that you know, progress or evolution or innovation, how do you, how can they work on, on I guess, becoming more open to that and, and maybe overcoming those fears and things that are holding them back? I think there's two ends of it. Uh, if you think about... Okay, so so often I'm in front of a group of people who are now dealing with, oh, my God, here's another change. Here comes automation. Here comes a new government, whatever else it is. I'll say, just a quick show of hands. How many people here have ever gone to a different country and driven on the exact opposite side of the road? And I don't know, about 90% of the hands go up. And I'll say, what was that like? I'm just going to remind you, you're on the wrong side of the car, on the wrong side of the road. Everything that you know about driving is wrong and will kill you, and everything that your body is resisting is the only way you'll survive this. And they'll say, it was horrible, it was terrible, oh, I felt sick, I was so nervous. How long did that last? So, I, I don't know, a week, two weeks, and then, I don't know, I, I guess my mind was plastic and it kind of adapted. A friend of mine has a saying, it's only kinky the first time. <laughs> so the first thing I like to do is to acknowledge, yes, an adjustment in your behavior, in the way you do things, will make you feel physically sick. It'll actually screw up your ears and make you feel nauseous. I get that. So let's just embrace that. The fact that it feels weird, that's normal. That's what's supposed to happen. 
if we go, oh, if you're having a problem with change, there's something wrong with you. You've already alienated people. And I'll say all the people in this room with their hands up, you survived. Do you know what I mean? You did this thing and you've done it more than once and you got here. And did you learn a new language? And did you make conversions in a different currency? You know, did you change your habits? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, guess what? You guys know how to change. You've done it before. This isn't a new thing. Change isn't a one-off, like a one-and-done, like you were saying before. This is, this is a constant thing. So what I do is I acknowledge that people have already got some skills in this area. And that makes them feel a little bit better about it. Like, okay, yeah, I have been. Do you know what? I've buried parents. I've had a divorce. I've been sacked before. How bad could this be? But we always treat each new variation like it's a brand new thing. And none of us have ever had to alter our lives at all, which is not, you know, just not honoring the life they've been through. So that's the one thing I do to get people to open up. The other thing I talk about is if you've ever been in a really turbulent situation, I don't know whether it happens in the air, but I know it happens on water. If you're in a really turbulent situation, the advice they give you is pick out something that's not moving and concentrate on that because then you won't throw up. But if you're just watching everything else heaving and moving and twisting, you'll really get dizzy. But if you go, I'm looking at the moon or I'm watching the horizon or I'm looking at you know, the star or whatever else it is, you've picked something that's not moving. And then I take that as a metaphor and say, what is it in your world, in your job, that isn't moving right now? Has the purpose of the job changed? Probably not. Have the basic realities of the job changed? what people want and how much they're prepared to pay for it and how long things take, that probably hasn't changed either. What's changed? The possibilities. Different ways of working, different ways of thinking. How do you want to react to that? Do you want to be frightened by it? Or do you want to actually lean into it and see whether there's actually something exciting here? So you look at people's businesses during COVID. In fact, I can tell you with my own business, the purpose of what I do has not changed at all. The realities of what I do, what stories work, which ones don't, what gets a laugh, what doesn't, what do people actually want to hear? What are they looking for? They're the same. So the realities haven't changed. The purpose hasn't changed. What's changed? This, delivery. How I do it is the only bit that changed. So of the three things that I could pay attention to, two of them aren't moving. So it gives me a bearing in which I can understand the one thing that is. That's the way I look at it. And it's interesting that uh, basically what you just said there ties back to your piece that you help people understand context you deliver context oh my not god content. it's consistent it's consistent <laughs> and since it's consistently delivers context i'm so glad it all kind of works joins up it works it's that. a tick but yeah. but the, the point being that that if people don't understand they don't get it then they need to go yeah. back and get context from somebody else as you said somebody that's can right. actually if they're the fish that new perspective. that's right if they're the yeah. fish they're not going to know they're swimming in water, but someone out of the water is going to go, hey, do you realize that you're swimming in a really big thing of water here? Um, yeah, and, yeah. and getting that context is, is really important. So clearly, you know, we've had a bit of a discussion around yourself, your son and all that sort of stuff. But knowing what you know now, if you were to go back to, say, a version of yourself when you were younger and give one piece of advice to yourself, what would it actually be? I would tell myself that everyone was faking. I'd say it's not just you. Everyone is faking. Everyone is making it up as they go along. Maybe the exception of someone who works in a factory who does the same job 4,000 times a day for their entire life, maybe they're not faking, but everyone else is. So even a highly qualified surgeon, you know, you've opened up someone and you've studied thoracic surgery for your entire life. You're opening up a brand new patient with brand new things going on. There's going to be a degree of fakery. And once you've understood that, that a huge part of what you do has got to be improvisation, 
then you could relax a little bit. And I think as a, as a kid, and I think a lot of people feel this when they talk about imposter syndrome, they think, am I the only one who doesn't quite know what they're doing here? And are they, is anyone else ever going to find out? When you realize everybody's faking, just, okay, I get it. I think that would that would have sped things up for me enormously. That would be a great piece of advice. So as soon as I invent time travel, <laughs> after I kill Hitler, that'll be the next thing I do. That's great. It's sage advice. And look, Jason, we, we had a chance to talk a few weeks ago uh, when we had that conversation. You said to me, oh, look, Boo, I don't know whether I fit into that mold. I don't know whether I, you know, I'm one of the few. And I think that the reality is after today's conversation, uh, I think you're well and truly uh, one of the few that 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 ability to understand uh, the importance of context. You mentioned Christmas trees, stars, uh, being able to visualize uh, all of these skills. are. It's unique that this is the only conversation we've had uh, with uh, many of our guests on the topic of context of the topic yeah. of externalizing things the way that you are. So so therefore, within the few, you are one of the few. Do I get a certificate? We should do that. A smiley face. A smiley I'll get face. one. Get certificate of encouragement. Or absolutely. So, so Jason, can I tell my wife I'm one of the few now? You, absolutely. Yeah, you can, um, she can give Sean a phone or give you a testimonial. Uh, Beautiful. But, but thanks so much, Jason, for coming on the show. I had a feeling if if we didn't start wrapping things up now, we'll be here for for hours because there's so yeah, many there's so many rabbit warrants uh, and rabbit holes opening up in my mind as you speak and the links between oh, but there's mindset and fixed mindset and growth mindset here and. And this type of change. So let's just uh, let's just call it a day uh, before we create more chaos and entropy. Uh, but thanks so much, Jason, for, for coming on the show. Really appreciate it, Jason. Absolute pleasure. Honoured to be part of it. Thanks, guys. Thanks so much. Thanks, everyone. Take care. Listening. Thanks so much, Rob. This has been The View Podcast with Boo and Sean. If you've got value from this episode and you would like to support us, please share it with your friends. If you're posting this on social media, use the hashtag The Few so we can see who's listening. The View Podcast is recorded at Momentum Media in Sydney, Australia. To listen to more episodes, visit us at viewpodcast.com and make sure you subscribe so you never miss an episode. Dream big, keep pushing, and one day you can become one of The Few. We'll see you next week.